it's it's not super hard to build accessible from the ground up. Does it take extra effort? You betcha. But in the end, it's the right thing to do. It includes everybody. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Block, the building, learning, and organizational culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby, and on today's episode... I chat with my talented teammate, Bella Gaitan, about accessibility. Not only do we talk about how to make learning experiences accessible for everyone, but we talk about some common misconceptions when we think about what does accessibility mean. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Hey, Bella, how's it going? It is going lovely. How are you today, Heidi? Good, great. Um, For those of our listeners who don't know... Bella and I have the absolute pleasure of working together every day at Pantheon for just, oh, five months today. No way. Is it really? Yeah. It's the 18th. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Happy five months. Thank you. I was like, how long have I been there? Four, five, six months? Yeah. So we're on the same team, so we know each other quite well, but... For our listeners who don't know you, I'll just have you tell me your story and how you got into learning and development and anything fun you want to share. Yeah, for sure. So, um, hey, everyone. For anyone that doesn't know, my name is Bella Gaitan. If you cannot say that, you can say Bella Gaitan. That works, too. Um, My pronouns are she and her. Uh, As Heidi said, I work with her on the customer education team at Pantheon. I am a technical instructional designer And I also work with Tim Slade as the community and social media manager for the eLearning Designers Academy. (sighs) I always have to take a deep breath after that because it is a mouthful. Um, And then in addition to that, I am a diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility um, advocate. To spare my voice, I will refer to that as DEIA moving forward in the conversation. Um, I'm a, I guess I should say a hobbyist WordPress web developer because I do not have a lot of clients and it's mostly for my own websites. Um, I'm fueled by cats, comedy, and coffee. If you can talk about any three of those, like I'm, you have a friend in me. In terms of how I came to L&D and instructional design uh, in general, so I grew up with uh, a dad who was an HR manager. So this was long before the stringent, you know, policies on privacy and such. And my dad would take me into the office. He'd let me type up grievances. Um, He would let me, you know, play secretary and, you know, you know, get memos and, you know, do photocopies and stuff like that. But I I tell people that I kind of grew up in an L&D environment, even though dad was an HR manager in a lot of his roles, he was kind of like the do it all, you know? Yeah. So... I learned a lot about that and an appreciation for HR growing up with him. Um, I have one of those stories where I kind of bounced around from all different things. I was, first of all, I was pre-med. I wanted to be a geneticist. And then at 18 or 19, yeah, 18, almost 19, I got pregnant with my daughter. And I was like, nope, not going to med school as a single mom. So I turned to nursing, graduated nursing school top of my class. Wanted to be a midwife though. 
And this was back in like the mid nineties. We didn't really have a nursing and healthcare, you know, shortage at that time. So every place wanted experience and I was young and very stubborn. And I was like, nope, if I can't work in OBGYN, um, caring for, you know, pregnant women and women in general, I, I don't want to. So at that point, it gets a little fuzzy thinking about uh, my uh, different educational paths that I've taken. So I went into computer programming and electronic engineering. Um, but then I had to quit that program because I got a divorce and, you know, had to like my finances changed and everything. So then I went back to school for organizational psychology and then for life reasons, had to quit that. <laughs> You're seeing a pattern here, right? So then I went back and I was like, okay, I want to be a counseling psychologist. Um, I had finished doing a one-year um, volunteer position with the Trevor Project as a crisis counselor. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that would be a great way to go. But after a while, I thought, you know, it's hard for me to turn that off at the end of the day. It's hard for me to separate that, you know, one, mm. not transitioning from work into home life and relaxing and stuff. Um, and that's one of the downfalls of being like an empath. You know, you just kind of like yeah. absorb everything and it's really hard to turn that off. So bing, bang, boom. I was like, good old HR. Let's go into that. So I graduated with my Bachelor of Science in Human Resource Management. And um, upon graduation and I started looking for roles and looking at the job descriptions and I was like, that's not what my dad did, Mm. you know? And just after a while, I was like, you know, my dad's a people person. He was Mm. the HR manager that every day he went out into the factory and made his rounds. And anybody knew that they could come up to him and say, Hey, I really need to talk to you. And they could either talk there or he'd be like, yeah, come back to my office. Like, let's talk, you know? And so I just started feeling like that type of role is dead now. You know, you have these these HR departments and now they're divided, learning and development, benefits, you know, and it just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't appeal to me anymore. So mm-hmm. I was racking my brain and I was like, let me, let me go back to school and get a master's. For what heck if I know? In that moment, I was a manager for a small company and I was onboarding all of the new um, employees in, in my department. I was QAing them. I was upskilling them. I was maintaining all of the training and documentation material. And as I'm looking for degrees, I came across instructional design. I'm like, what the heck is that? You know, let me look into this. And as I started reading it, I was like, holy crap, this is, this is what I want. This can me still tap into like my HR and, you know, being a people person and being able to help people on a professional level. It also tapped into like psychology and counseling just because I felt like I could really reach people, but not be so attached and, you know, have so much baggage just because I would not be able to let go of it, you know? Sure. But also like training and onboarding and, you know, creating like a knowledge base and stuff. So it just really felt like finally in my life, I've found something where I can put that all together. Mm-hmm. Backtrack during that time, I studied web development as well. Um, I won a uh, like a, a front end development coding challenge with Google, so I worked uh, with Google on that. Um, and and you know, learning about instructional design and the different tools and stuff like that, I thought, okay, well, that lets me use my my tech background as well. 
So it was just one of those like aha moments, you know, where the angels, you know, up on high were like, glory, you got it, you know. And so (laughs) once I fell into it and got into school, it was just, that was it. Like I was hooked. I was like, this is what I've always wanted to do. I found that sweet spot in my career life to the point where I'm happy with what I do. My job and career, like it makes me happy. So I've I've won. I love it. Yeah. And I love that we both come from such different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. but we both found like those things that we were looking for from our respective backgrounds in instructional design and in learning and development. And obviously the thing we have in common is the the wanting to help people part, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's where we've really bonded is like the just desire to help people. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's why we're talking about accessibility today, Yay. because what better way to help people than to make things that we're working on as instructional designers or just learning and development professionals in general yeah. accessible to all. Um, and what I'd first kind of like to talk about is like kind of like this the misconception around accessibility, right, that it's about very visible, very permanent disabilities, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we talk about accessibility and learning and development, people are like, oh, screen readers or, you know, things that are like deaf, blind, um, unable to use the keyboard, but there's so much more nuance than that. Yes. Yes. So much more. And even just talking about that, I get all like, I get fired up inside because even me, like I've had to really go through like a, a journey to get to where I am with accessibility. I'll give you an example. Um, as you know, I'm colorblind. I'm red, green, colorblind. And prior to really, you know, becoming what I would consider like an accessibility champion and advocate, um, I thought, well, that's my vision problem. I just have to deal with it. Mm. So when I would be on websites and I couldn't see something, I was like, well, like that's my problem. It's, Mm. you know, I never really saw it as being like inaccessible or that I wasn't having like an equitable chance to, you know, interact with the, with the content. So even me, I've had to grow and realize, you know, that no, it's, it's, it's not like, it's not this huge feat to make things accessible. And there's been a lot of talk on LinkedIn lately that really has me fired up. Um, uh, there was an interaction with someone on my LinkedIn page that wasn't a happy camper. And basically they were saying like, you know, I deserve to be happy. Hmm. And doing all these changes to my content isn't going to make me happy. And this was someone who was hmm. not disabled and did not require any type of accommodations. And I'm thinking you know, that's, that's absolutely not true. And I I think people look at accessibility and they're just like, it's, it's an afterthought Mm. or it's reactionary. They've been called out or maybe they lost a contract because they weren't, you know, putting out something that was, that was accessible or compliant within whatever, you know, guidelines um, that their industry uses. So it's, it's it's not super hard to build accessible from the ground up. Does it take extra effort? You betcha. But in the end, it's the right thing to do. It includes everybody. Well, basically, like if you were in a group of people, you wouldn't just exclude one person for whatever reason. 
Yeah. You know, for any reason, like, oh, because they have blue hair, oh. you know, you wouldn't exclude that person and just completely ignore them for, for right. that reason. Well, you know, they have blue, blue hair. It's fine. Right. Or, you know, if you're at an amusement park and you have one friend who's shorter than the rest oh. of you and the rest of you can go on the roller coaster, but this one can't. Would you leave your friend behind and say, here, why don't you just hold all our stuff while we go on this roller coaster because you're too short to ride? Yeah. <laughs> and, and sadly, a lot of people would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's that's fair. I personally wouldn't, but I wouldn't either. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, right, is a lot of people see accessibility as, well, if it's not me, then I don't care. Mm -hmm. But it is you at some point in time, right? Like we all have some like we all need an accommodation at some point, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's you know, I have carpal tunnel surgery and for a month I can't use a mouse normally. Yeah. Right. Or if I have a child and I, you know, now have my child at home with me while I'm working, um, maybe that means that like I can't use my microphone. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I can only listen and use chat or, you know, there's so many different things that we don't think about that require accommodation or even just like, let's say like a true one for me is if I don't go see the eye doctor soon, I'm going to run out of contact lenses. Yeah. I have to wear my glasses all the time. Uh-huh. And it's a different experience. I can't drive well at night with my glasses. Yeah. On, right. Like I don't have that. And so all these little things that people want to think that accessibility is about these big permanent disabilities yes but it's about an equitable experience for everyone and about just considering what that looks like before right you start designing and developing right yeah and I think that's a really good point is we're all going to be quote unquote disabled at some point and I don't mean that in terms of like a permanent disability although we all do get old and we know as we age we need additional accommodations you know yeah and um I like the examples that you brought up because similarly, my mom had surgery on her thumb recently. Mm. We had to like rig up her phone with like, my dad built a board to hold her Uno cards because we play Uno all the time. Like we throw down with Uno. So sweet. Yeah. So he built, it looks like, it looks like a, like a tablet stand or something like that, that you would put like your tablet on, but he built a board to hold all of her Uno cards. And so we couldn't see as well. Because, you know, she had to, you know, keep it on ice and, you know, keep it elevated yeah. and had a lot of pain. She wasn't in physical therapy yet. So she wasn't, you know, supposed to be, um, you know, using it. So, I mean, that's like a, a temporary disability for her. Now she can mm-hmm. play fine. She doesn't need the board, you know. But then you have things like, like you said, you know, with having a child at home that, you know, they're a great kid, but they just don't shut up. You know, they just talk, 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 talk. And you, you know, you have to just keep it on mute. And, yeah, you know, so that's, that's another thing. Um, and not even when we think about accommodations, not even limiting it to settings to make or changes to make or, you know, things yeah. like that, but options don't force yes. everyone to come on camera, you know, there could be a man who his wife beat him up last night and he's got bruises mm. all over and he's ashamed. Sure. Do not make everyone come on camera. Can you imagine the horror of anyone who's like in a domestic violence situation, mm. you know, to, to have to come on camera? 
don't make people speak in the microphone. They may not like their voice. And I know some people might listen, some people might hear that and be like, well, you know, grow up, get over it. But so many people have traumas about so many different things, and we truly never know what someone has been through. Um, don't make people type in chat. You know, it, it could be someone like me. I have um, very painful fingers. And so a lot of times, like, I do not want to type in chat because my fingers won't move right. I'll make a bunch of mistakes, and then I either just hit send almost like a reaction or I have to constantly sit there and try to, you know, and then, you know, so we're thinking about all those different, you know, physical and maybe emotional or psychological options mm-hmm. that we can give people. One of the groups of people that are left out of uh, accessibility a lot are people that are neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. What do we mean by neurodivergent? So there's a lot of terms that surround people that have conditions such as ADHD, autism, and other, you know, neurological type disorders. Um, Neurodivergent is the one that I use. I know some people don't like that term, but it's a way for us to try to say that it is different from neurotypical, not normal, but neurotypical, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And So when you're talking about neurodivergence, you're talking about people that have uh, ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. You're talking about people that have autism at all areas of the spectrum. Um, One of the groups that is often left out, even in the neurodivergent group, are people that have personality disorders, Mm. people that have other mental health conditions, such as, you know, schizophrenia or, you know, stuff like that. Um, because those conditions affect the way that we think and we process and we, you know, we understand things. So, you know, a perfect example in ways to be more accessible for neurodivergent folks is something that I do. I do my alt text, but I do an image description as well. And in the image description, I try to convey if there's a specific mood that someone Mm. understand about the picture Because if I'm just looking at you and I'm kind of just barely smiling, you may not know that that's a smile for me. Like I never smile Mm. with my teeth when I take a picture. So some people might see that and be like, oh, she's trying to show that she's forcing a smile. Or you may not understand that that truly is the way that I smile. You might think that I'm angry when the post is meant to say that I'm tired or I'm hungry Mm. or I'm hangry. You know, it's getting really bad over here in my stomach. Um, But also, you know, thinking about things like not using sarcasm heavily, because a lot of people with neurodivergence and myself included, I struggle with sarcasm, especially if it's something that is maybe from a TV show that I've not seen, or it has to do with a topic mm. that I don't know a lot about. It could be something sure. like wine. I'm definitely not a wine snob. Um, you know, if someone makes a sarcastic joke or something about wines, I'm going to sit there and go, I have no clue what that means. Yeah. And so then I'm like, okay, do I go waste time Googling it? Do I ask? And sometimes I will ask because I'm truly curious, but it's also my way to say, Hey, like not everyone gets what you're saying. And, you know, in learning that, that's, that's another thing. Like with learning, if you use too much sarcasm, you're, you're going to miss a lot of people. And it's the same thing with humor. Like I love to joke all the time. And I have to figure out, like, how do I, like, rein that in when I'm yeah. working on e-learning? Because I do want to have little, like, comical moments, you know, those, those sure. brief moments where you, you're you not dreading, 
you know, the next uh, slide <laughs> in yes. the presentation or something. So, but it, it's a, it's a fine line that you have to, you have to walk, you know? Um, another example that caters to people, a lot of people don't think about catering to people that um, English is not their first language. Yes. Or even if it is, they live in a country that is not, you know, like they live in Australia, they live in Wales, you know, they, they live somewhere where they're going to have different slang and different ways yeah. of things. So in my last session with TLDC, I mentioned a potluck dinner and I immediately explained what is a potluck dinner. Because if you think about that, if I didn't know what it was, I would think it has something to do with maybe Irish food because we have that weird, you know, the leprechaun with the pot. Yeah. And so I'm kind of like, <laughs> now that I say that, I'm wondering if it stems from that somehow because potluck, yeah. like it's, it's very strange, but you know, or that it's something where, okay, you're cooking something in a pot over a fire. Maybe, I don't know, but right. you know, explain those things. And you know, that way that you're ensuring that you're not, you're not missing out on anyone. Right. And the sarcasm is another thing with international audiences. Not everyone from other countries. I found this just in Mm -hmm. teaching in life. Not everyone from other countries understands sarcasm. So if you're, especially when English is their second language and so like, if you make a sarcastic joke, they're like, huh? No, (laughs) that's not, that's not a thing. And you're like, yeah, I know. That's why I said it. Yeah. Well, wait, you know, and I think, so I think for me, when I was starting in instructional design and I was trying to remember all the bits and pieces of design, development, performance, needs analysis, all that, accessibility seemed so overwhelming because look at all these things that we've just presented yeah. of, oh, you should consider this and consider that and consider. But it's not that you have to have a list. Like you don't need a list in front of you of all the different possibilities, yeah. different ways that somebody could be at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. You just have to think about your audience and think about really the purpose of the content that you're creating, because if that's on point, it's much easier to meet all those other criteria. And I think where we get carried away a lot of times in L&D is like, we want to make it fun or we want to make it pretty or, and then we act as if accessibility is cramping our style Mm -hmm. or um, impeding on our creativity in some way. And it's like, well, no, it's actually causing you to be more creative. Yeah. Because now you have to consider what is going to give me the broadest experience or broadest, you know, um, create the largest net mm-hmm. to catch all my learners. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and once you start going down that path, you know, accessibility becomes so easy. Because it just becomes second nature to you. Um, and in terms of like not being able to have fun, not being able to like have, you know, bits of comedy in with your like learning or any type of like online content. I'll use an example. I recently made a post about podcasts, you know, wanting to know like mm-hmm. from you and others that I know that do podcasts, like what, you know, what platforms and tools do you use? And I always try to add a picture with my post just because. I like the way it looks when I scroll through someone's feed and I see a picture Yeah, and I try to make sure that it's on topic. So I chose a picture of me in Ireland several years back at a sheep farm where I was communicating with a sheep that I called the fat one because he constantly followed me around and wanted to like eat my clothes and like my hands and just, you know, begging me. So in my image description, 
I included a short line about, you know, Bella is using all of her interpersonal, you know, and her crisis diffusion skills and communication skills and everything with the fat one to, you know, ensure that he understands that he's safe and he's not going to like wilt away, you know? Um, And so I had fun with that. And I was looking for a create, I always look for that creative way that I can explain what is in the photo, why I'm using that picture. Mm-hmm. And then also have like that little bit of comedy in there as well. Yeah. And it does. It takes creativity. It really does. Yeah. And even when I'm like picking images or icons or um, stuff like that, it it does. I have to really dig in and be creative because I don't want to have to go back and fix it because I find out that I've made something inaccessible for someone. I want to make it, you know, and then like leave it and not have to like repair it in the future, you know. Yeah, and I think to your point about having multiple different ways to access the same content is really where that comes into play too, is you don't have to do all of the accessibility things in one e-learning, right? Like Uh you can say, here's the e-learning, but here's an audio-only version of that same e-learning, or here's a PDF that's just, you know, a transcript of that e-learning, and you know, making those experiences as equitable as possible, but just providing different ways to access that information for those different groups of people, then will allow you a little bit more space and freedom in that e-learning to do the certain things that you want to do because you're providing it in more than one way. Yeah. And that's something I've really been working on because one of the things that, um, and I'll be honest, my, my website is pretty accessible, but it does still have some areas that I need to improve. And a lot of that was, I fell into instructional design rather quickly. And so I had to quickly get like a portfolio up, you know, so I did yeah. like my best practices um, in accessibility, but there's some things that I want to improve. One of the things I've been wanting to do is provide an audio on every page that I have on my website. So if people would like to just listen of the, you know, listen to the audio of a blog post or an article yeah. or, or something like that, they can do that. So I made a post, I think a couple days ago with my wildly bleached hair in all its glory, um, talking about, you know, like, uh, let's talk about, you know, the good with the not so good. And I wanted to see how long it would take me if I truly made it as accessible as I possibly could. So I recorded the video, went in and edited it, you know, and did the captions. And then I also extracted the audio only with the background music that I had, because for me, I like a tiny bit of background music because sometimes Mm -hmm. that silence in between, um, I'm not able to pay attention as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just me. But then I did another audio that I extracted from Camtasia that had just my voice. And then I provided a transcript. I provided just text, like an RTF file, and then I provided it as a PDF. And then the post on my website was a cleaned up version of the transcript because yeah. I I throw in a lot of fluff words. I always say, yeah. you know, and so like, those are my big yeah. things. Yeah. And so I didn't want to like, you know, put that in my page and like, you know, have people go through like, you know, like, 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 yeah. Even me trying to pretend it, I keep saying like, you know. Yeah. But those are like my, my, my filler words, my fluff words. And so yeah, of course. it took me several hours. I won't lie, but, but I learned exactly what order is going to be best for me to do it in the future. 
Sure. I'm saved the different blocks on my website. I use Elementor uh, plugin um, web page builder within WordPress. I created the different blocks and I saved them as a template. So next time when I go in and I'm going to make an article and I do that, I have the design all laid out. I just have to go in and tweak like HTML for the audio and, you know, just like replace the media links. But I was like, okay, this is pretty freaking awesome. It took me a while, but I've got, you know, I've got that routine now in place. Is it going to still take me a little bit of extra time? Like, yeah, it is. But for me, it's worth it. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do like the text and the PDF file is my dear friend Bello um, is blind and he uses mm-hmm. a screen reader. And we were communicating on LinkedIn one day and he was asking me if I could instead email him because we were going to be exchanging files. And he said, it's much easier through email with my screen reader. And I was like, interesting. Okay. So then I started thinking about pronunciation through screen readers and for people that Mm -hmm. have names that maybe are not going to be in there. Um, And so I had introduced him to someone who needed some accessibility services and their name did not look, did not sound how it's spelled. And so I knew the screen reader would, would mess it up. So I included just an extra sentence in here, in there. And I said, Hey, this is how the name is pronounced. And I typed it as well as I could, like in just words. And he was able to adjust his screen reader. So from that point on, every time he heard, you know, her name, it would be pronounced properly. Um, So that's another small thing that you can do for people, you know, and you're never going to make something 100% accessible. Because disabilities, whether they are permanent, temporary, or situational, they fall on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so even me, I'm red ring colorblind. So is my dad. So is my son. We will give you three different answers most of the time when we look at a color. And it's it's on a spectrum. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, Even eye care providers often don't know that. And me and my son will be at the doctor's office and they'll go through it. We'll score the same on a test. You know, the, is it? Ishihara, I think, test, but the dots, you know, that you try to look for the numbers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will score the same on that test. But then if you take us to something that has colors, we'll say different colors. And it's so wild, you know, and even blows my mind. So you're just, you're never going to be able to create something that's 100% accessible. But if you can just put your best foot forward, your best effort, and it's just... I always say this, it's the right thing to do. It's the nice thing to do. Yeah. It's the kind things, to, the kind thing to do. One day you will want an accommodation for whatever yeah. reason. And I hope that in that moment, you know, you think like, wow, this is how people feel when they can't access mm. content the same way that I've always been able to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really, that's really true. And I think a lot of times we spend all this time talking about, learner engagement and motivating the learner. And if you think about some of the cheesy things that have been done to try and motivate and engage learners, I always bring it back to this terrible bingo game I encountered during onboarding once to the person who created that. I'm sorry I keep bringing it up, but it was so (laughs) bad. And like if that person had just funneled that time and energy into creating something accessible or even just setting up the processes, like you said, 
to create something accessible because I'm sure this bingo game took hours to create. If I, yeah, because I created one. I created yeah. one in storyline, and it took me uh-huh. oh so long. So if we could just take that time <laughs> away from irrelevant things, like this yeah. did not. The thing that was a bingo game did not need to be a bingo mm-hmm. game. There was no reason for it. Yeah. And if we just moved away from the that and moved to more relevant things, like an equitable experience, how, you know, if we can reach more learners by giving them something they can actually use, yeah. <laughs> you know, then isn't that a better way to spend time than making a fun game? Yeah. And I mean, games are fun. But there, there's a time and a place for them. So like the bingo one I did, it was literally an e-learning heroes articulate challenge. Yeah. It was brutal. Like I'll tell you, because just to have like, to put in all the different variables and triggers and stuff, you know, and, and everything. And I had like ultimate bingo, like in a, like an Easter egg hidden behind it. Like I went all out on that. But yeah, I think just there, there's so much better things to do than having a complicated game. People yeah. hear gamification a lot. And they feel that, oh, everyone needs to have a character and points and a way to level up. And what's your, you know, what class are you going to be? You know, um, and this is coming from a a hardcore gamer here. You know, I mean, it's not like I don't love gaming. I mean, I'm on World of Warcraft almost every day, you know, gaming and stuff. And, you know, my computer is legit named after one of my World of Warcraft characters. (laughs) One of my businesses is named after the continent in World of Warcraft. I'm a huge nerd. but. I don't think we need to go all out like that when we're doing training. There's other Mm. ways to be fun. There's other ways to engage people. There is social learning so that people can be able to connect with others and that lived experience. There's scenario-based learning. And I know you have plenty to say about that. So I won't even go into that because that's your jam, you know, but, and there's just so much more that can be done instead of just throwing in this really complicated game And again, you know, the more complicated you get with stuff like graphics and visual and audio, you run into just excluding so many people. Yeah. Yeah. Drag and drops are not accessible. Mm -hmm. So many people, that's news to them. Yeah. Right. But if I can't use a mouse, I can't participate. And you'd be surprised how many people can't use a mouse. It's not, yeah. you don't have to have a permanent physical disability and be in a wheelchair to not be able to use a mouse. Right. Like I can't use a standard mouse anymore. I use a vertical mouse. But yeah. even then I still get fatigued after a long day. Yeah. And of one of the things that I try to do with sharing like my lived experience is not only to show people different ways you can be accessible that are not going to be in the different, you know, reference uh, um, resources that you come across. So yeah, using my myself as an example, like I use a vertical mouse because I can't use a regular one, but even with the vertical one, I get fatigued. And so I share often about how people should think outside of the box with accessibility as well. Hmm. One of the things I see on LinkedIn a lot, and this is nowhere in any type of accessibility, you know, manual or anything, is when people put a couple of words per line and they put a bunch of, you know, they enter a bunch of times. Does it look cool? Yeah. But for someone like me, it causes me to scroll more. And because I hyperextend so much, anytime I bend a joint, I bend it way too far. And so the more I scroll, the more pain I have, you know. Um, And on your point about not all people can use a mouse, I remember um, when I was in Morocco, 
And I met a man who um, was a painter using, putting a paintbrush in his mouth. That was how mm. he painted. And he had his phone set up the same way so that he could, he had like a, someone had rigged this up for him so that he could have like a, kind of like a stylus that he held yeah. in his mouth and be able to access his phone. And so it's just, I don't know that. I know people want to be like, do the next big cool thing. I know they want to have something memorable, but like, if you just provide a really cool experience and a really cool atmosphere and you're teaching what you're setting out to teach your learners, like that's golden. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all my guests, but with an accessibility spin. So if you had to recommend one resource on accessibility for people who want to learn more, because we've been talking for over half an hour and we've only just scratched the surface. Yeah, yeah. What would you recommend and why? Yeah, I would recommend WebAIM and that's web, like the World Wide Web. And then AIM stands for Accessibility in Mind. They are a phenomenal organization. Um, they have like contrast checkers so that you can check color contrast um, to ensure that you're using like accessible uh, color combinations. They have uh, training courses as well. Um, but I would, I would definitely recommend to start there. And DeCue University is another one as well that offers courses and training. And with both WebAIM and DeCue University, if you yourself are disabled, they have programs where you can take their training for free. That's amazing. Because, yeah, both of them, they see the value in having people that are disabled and have that lived experience in learning more about accessibility and being able to, you know, champion for um, inclusion because you can't be inclusive if you're not accessible. I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me outside of work sure, yeah. <laughs> to talk more than we normally do. It's yeah. been great having you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Heidi. I appreciate it. Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you'll tune in again soon.